Welcome to NTD News Today. Here are our top stories. A congressional delegation visits the Rafah border crossing between Egypt and Gaza. The purpose of their visit and what's next in the Israel-Hamas war. Collapsed roads, massive flooding and rescues. A wet winter storm is wreaking havoc in California. Fentanyl is killing people in cities across the U.S. Indigenous tribes are hit especially hard. An inside look at the synthetic drug crisis. A U.S.-Russia dual citizen reportedly detained in Russia. State-run media says she's accused of treason related to the war in Ukraine. A court hearing begins in the U.K. for WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange as he makes a last-ditch effort to avoid extradition to the U.S. Astronomers discovered what could be the brightest object in the universe. A black hole at its heart swallows the equivalent of one sun every day. This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stephania Cox and Chris Beers. Hi, I'm David Lamb. I'm sitting in for Chris Beers. And to begin the show, we open with the latest updates on the Israel-Hamas war. A congressional delegation is visiting the Rafah border crossing between Gaza and Egypt today. Democratic Congressman Adam Smith is leading the delegation. We are very serious about, number one, to getting a negotiated ceasefire in the war, and number two, improving the flow of humanitarian aid, which at the current level is unacceptable and is an absolute catastrophe, no doubt about it. The congressman visited warehouses in Egypt where aid is assembled before being sent to Gaza. The visit comes as Israel prepares to launch ground operations in the city of Rafah. Israel said operations will begin if Hamas doesn't return hostages by the start of Ramadan. That's the evening of March 10th. The Israeli Defense Forces today asked residents to evacuate two neighborhoods in central Gaza, as well as parts of Gaza City in northern Gaza. The UN World Food Program said it will pause deliveries into northern Gaza until conditions improve. And at the UN Security Council, the U.S. just vetoed a call for a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas. The U.S. ambassador to the U.N. said the plan could have interfered with efforts to secure hostage deal as part of a six-week pause in fighting. The U.S. proposed a rival resolution supporting a temporary ceasefire. It also calls for the release of all hostages and the lifting of all restrictions of humanitarian aid. It states Israel's ground offensive in Rafah should not proceed under current circumstances and warns of serious implications for regional security and peace if more civilians are displaced. It included the risk for neighboring countries in reference to Egypt. The U.S.-backed plan also condemns any calls for resettlement or territorial change in Gaza that would violate international law. The Supreme Court today rejected an appeal from Sidney Powell and other six Trump-aligned lawyers. They were initially fined $150,000 for filing a lawsuit challenging the 2020 election in Michigan. The court's decision supported a ruling last year that upheld sanctions for some of the lawyers, requiring them to pay legal fees and to undergo new legal training. Sidney Powell and Linwood were among the nine lawyers initially sanctioned for filing the election lawsuit. Powell called the group the Kraken. And the second head-to-head matchup between former President Donald Trump and former UN Ambassador Nikki Haley is fast approaching. 
South Carolina's Republican primaries begin Saturday, and despite trailing Trump about 30 points in the polls, Haley says she's not giving up. Here to discuss is Epic Times political reporter Lawrence Wilson. Lawrence, welcome. Great to have you back again. To begin with, what are Haley's chances in South Carolina this time and why? Well, they're not good for a victory, uh, certainly, because the poll you mentioned, the polling indicates that she's trailing by 30 percentage points. Donald Trump is polling in the mid 60s. Uh, Ms. Haley is in the low 30s. And that's been the case since the first of the year, at least. So she's not expected to win. Will she do better than expected? Will she do as happened in uh, New Hampshire? Will she finish ahead of what her polling indicated? That's possible. Uh, but she's not expected to win this primary. This should be all Donald Trump. And what factors should we be watching out for in this primary? Well, I think voter turnout is going to be very interesting. The early indications are that interest is still very strong in this race. Of course, Donald Trump has a very strong base of support in South Carolina. His voters are motivated to turn out. And the early voting, which has been going on for about 10 days now, the early voting indicates that uh, this is going to be a much better turnout than in the Democratic primary, which was held there just three weeks ago. So I think the number of people who turn out is going to be some indication of whether this Haley-Trump kind of lopsided matchup, but a matchup nonetheless, whether that's really animating people. And I think we should keep an eye on the black vote in South Carolina because uh, President Trump has been making inroads into uh, black votership. In fact, he's scheduled to speak at a significant event for black voters on Friday, the day before the primary. So it'll be interesting to see if the polls that say he's making inroads with the black community are accurate. And this could be a test of that. Yeah, and just looking at this point of the number of early votes coming in, that there's twice as many early votes as the Democratic primary had. Um, considering that it's an open primary and also Nikki Haley's home state, that, that may not play into it too much. But does that lend itself toward any kind of surprises, do you think? Well, I don't think it will be a surprise, but there certainly will be some people who are independents and even who typically vote Democrat who are going to vote in this Republican primary specifically to vote for Nikki Haley and in, in, in opposition to Donald Trump. When I was there three weeks ago for the Democratic primary, I heard that from some voters and I heard that from some Democratic leaders. So we know that some of that is going to happen. How much difference will it make? That remains to be seen. It had a pretty good impact in New Hampshire where some of that crossover voting occurred, but no one expects it's going to excuse me, dramatically shift the course of this race. And you mentioned that Trump is polling more favorably with black Americans. Uh, I wonder how sh how Nikki Haley is doing with with that demographic. And also, I know she's been uh, she's been focusing more on the young generations. Uh, how's that working out for her and how is Trump doing on that front? Well, we don't have a specific polling that I know of on either of those questions. However, uh, this will be a test of that. We'll be looking at the exit polls coming out of the South Carolina primary on both of those points. 
Now, I can tell you this, that when I was in South Carolina three weeks ago, speaking mostly to Democrats because it was their primary being held, but there is a little divide between the younger voters, uh, the what I might call older millennial voters, and then the, the folks who look like me who are voting. Uh, and younger voters do think differently. So it'll be very interesting to see if Haley is connecting with them perhaps better than Donald Trump is. At this point, we just don't know. And we'll be keeping our eyes trained closely on that. Thank you so much, Lawrence Wilson, Epic Times political reporter. Always great to speak with you. Senator Joe Manchin said yesterday that Senate Republicans blocking a border and foreign aid bill earlier this month was the biggest part of his decision to not run for president. The retiring Democratic lawmaker said he always believed lawmakers could legislate through a crisis and was disappointed by the border package vote. Our NATO allies are very concerned, and the reason that we are the superpower of the world is we have uh, allies who have the same values that we have, the, the love of freedom and democracy. And it's just unbelievable that if he would not let that come to the floor for a vote. Congress remains gridlocked. Top House Republicans are refusing to support the new foreign aid package that doesn't include border security. Manchin had set a deadline of this spring to determine whether he would make a run for the White House, potentially on the no-labels ticket. But he announced on Friday that he was pulling the plug to focus on a new group, Americans Together, which promotes moderate politics. Manchin has refused to endorse Biden and criticized the president for being too liberal. The senator has also said he wouldn't be part of any effort to help Trump return to the White House. Wisconsin's Democratic Governor Tony Evers signed new legislative district maps into law yesterday. The governor proposed the maps and Republicans passed them to avoid having the liberal-controlled state Supreme Court draw the lines. Democrats hailed the signing as a major political victory in the swing state. The legislature has been firmly under Republican control for more than a decade. This despite Democrats winning 14 of the past 17 statewide elections. Democrats tried unsuccessfully for more than a decade to overturn the Republican-drawn maps, but it wasn't until the state Supreme Court flipped from conservative to liberal control last year that Democrats found a winning formula. Republicans said they had no better option. A top Republican official said Monday that Evers, quote, signed the most Republican-leaning maps out of all the Democrat gerrymandered maps being considered by the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Coming up, as the U.S. sends billions of dollars in aid to Ukraine, an important strategic partner sends billions of dollars to Russia. That's through purchases of record amounts of Russian crude oil. We'll delve deeper with NTD business host Don Ma after the break. Citing changes in consumer demand, Nike says it'll cut 2% of its corporate workforce. What could these layoffs mean for the U.S. economy? More in just a moment here on NTD News Today. California got another hit of wet winter weather yesterday. Runways were flooded at a regional airport and emergency crews performed several rescues on swollen rivers and creeks. Entity's Daniel Monahan has the update. The Santa Barbara airport on the state's central coast closed Monday after as much as 10 inches fell, covering the runways with water. The National Weather Service had warned that California's central coast was at risk of significant flooding. Up to five inches of rain predicted for many areas, with isolated rain totals of 10 inches in some areas as the storm headed toward greater Los Angeles. 
Significant flooding has hit Sonoma County, with massive amounts of water inundating the land and roadways. Water levels there rose to two feet high. Near Fremont, California, a slide caused the partial collapse and shutdown of Niles Canyon Road. Another road here, State Road 150, was shut down due to mudslides. The city of Ventura also grappled with mudslides and flooding. The water here moves swiftly down a neighborhood street. Emergency crews deal with the runoff as it eats away at the roads. Maintenance crews install sandbags to try to keep water from rushing over the streets. Many rescues were also carried out. Paso Robles Fire and Emergency Services said they had to rescue three people off islands in the swollen Salinas River on Monday. And the El Dorado Hills Fire Department rescued a man on Sweetwater Creek. He was trapped in the middle of the rapidly moving waters. The Sacramento Metropolitan Fire District says it rescued two people trapped in a vehicle in waist-high floodwaters. Metro Fire boat teams helped them off the car roof and got them to safety. Millions in California remain in the risk zone for heavy rain, flash flooding, and landslides. But officials said the state was unlikely to experience damage like that produced by an atmospheric river that came ashore two weeks ago. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Fentanyl is killing Americans from all walks of life. The demographic dying at the fastest rate in Washington state? Indigenous tribes. NTD's Arian Pazdar brings you the heartbreaking story of a mother trying to keep an entire generation from dying. Anybody home? Did Lummi Crisis Outreach, anybody home? Evelyn Jefferson enters a homeless encampment in Washington state, close to the Canadian border. She says many of the people at the encampment purposely left the Lumination Reservation to avoid the tribe's crackdown on opioids. Still, she keeps visiting the people, bringing them food and clothing. It's a losing battle, but, you know, somebody's got to be there to let them know that those addicts are, that somebody cares. In September, Lumination declared a state of emergency over fentanyl. They added drug-sniffing dogs and checkpoints while revoking bail for drug-related charges. But this came too late for Evelyn's son, who passed away at the end of that exact month. I was a first responder on the scene. I didn't expect to be my own child. As your firstborn, no mother should have to lay. I mean, I, I guess I'm blessed that I seen him come into this world and I was right there when he left. She says it took her eight days to bury her son because they had to wait in line. According to Evelyn, fentanyl has taken an entire generation away from them. The tribe has now opened a seven-bed facility to help members battling withdrawal and get them on medication for opioid use disorder. And more help is on the way. What you may not know, uh, Mr. President, that our tribal members are dying at the fastest rate of any race or ethnicity uh, in our state. A few days ago, the state Senate unanimously approved a bill to help tribes fight the crisis. Senate Bill 6099 is declared passed. The legislation is expected to provide nearly $8 million each year for the 29 federally recognized tribes in Washington to tackle the crisis. Now, what's interesting about these $8 million is that part of the money will come from settlements with opioid distributors. Just last month, for example, Washington State announced a $150 million settlement with drug maker Johnson Johnson. 
The settlement came over four years after the state had initially sued Johnson Johnson over its role in the opioid crisis. Now, Evelyn says the money allocated to her tribe is not a lot, but she emphasizes that anything will help. Ariane Pastar, NTD News. Colorado Springs police have arrested the man allegedly responsible for a double shooting at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. Police confirmed today the suspect was the roommate of one of the two victims, and the shooting was not a random attack against the school or other students. Last Friday morning, police were called after shots were fired inside the university's Creston House dormitory. Later, the bodies of the two victims were found. Police say the suspect was arrested without incident. The FBI and its international allies have seized a dark website that's plagued organizations all over the world with ransomware attacks. The ransomware gang known as Lockbit has claimed responsibility for several attacks using the dark web to extort its victims. According to a message posted on the hacker's website, it confirmed services have been disrupted as a result of international law enforcement action. The group has taken credit for a number for a November hack attack that forced a New Jersey-based healthcare system to cancel some patient appointments. Lockbit said, <clears throat> Lockbit said it's also behind ransomware attacks in Fulton County, Georgia, that disrupted key county services for weeks, along with an attack on the Industrial and Commercial Bank of China. The FBI said it will disclose additional details today. The Biden administration says it's providing $1.5 billion to the semiconductor company Global Foundries to expand production in New York and Vermont. The deal marks its third round of direct financial support for a microchip company under the Chips and Science Act. That law allows the government to invest over $52 billion into U.S. chip manufacturing and advanced research and development. Global Foundries is constructing a new advanced microchip factory in Malta, New York. It's planning to boost production at its existing plant in Malta and will also use funding to update its plant in Burlington, Vermont. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo says the chips are essential. She says they power military equipment, electric vehicles, smartphones and faster internet connections for Americans. On top of direct funding, the Biden administration says it'll also provide loans worth up to $1.6 billion. It says total public and private investment for the company's projects is expected to be over $12 billion. The projects aim to create 1,500 manufacturing jobs and 9,000 construction jobs over a 10-year span, $10 million is allocated towards training as terms of the deal. And joining us now is NTD Business host Don Ma to give us the latest updates from the financial world. Don, thanks for joining us. Now, uh, what do you have for us today? Okay, just a few things I, I want to go over today. Uh, so that includes uh, a quick update on Russia and also as well as how the Biden administration is cleaning up our drinking water. So I'll start off uh, with the Russian war in Ukraine. So uh, we know that Moscow is getting funding for the war through various channels, but I think you guys may not know that it's also getting funding from a key U.S. strategic partner which is India. So Russia is entering its third year of war in Ukraine with an unprecedented amount of cash and government coffers. And this is bolstered actually by $37 billion, which is a record, by the way, of crude sales to India last year. So this is according to the Centers for Research on Energy and Clean Air. So what we know so far uh, is that because of sanctions, China has been buying uh, record amounts of Russian crude oil and became the country's top oil buyer. 
but now it seems uh, very different. It feels very different as well that a strategic partner of the U.S. is stepping in to replace crude purchases uh, instead of Western buyers. Yeah, so how much oil exactly did India buy, you know, compared to before? Right, so uh, according to the think tank's analysis, India's uh, increased its purchases of Russian crude oil by over 13 times compared to pre-war levels 13 times you know that is that is impressive but an important thing to point out that is despite the large purchases of russian crude oil um india is actually not subject to sanctions uh so they're completely legitimate those purchases but you know Despite that, those purchases have indeed helped Russia fund its war against Ukraine to a certain level, I would say. And the net impact of India's crude purchases has helped uh, Russia to mitigate Western oil sanctions to a degree as well. So Russia's uh, federal revenues rose to a record $320 billion in 2023 and set to rise further. And I don't know if you knew this, but roughly a third of that $320 billion was spent on the war in Ukraine last year, according to some analysts, and a greater proportion is set to uh, finance the conflict even more in 2024 this year. Yeah, thanks for breaking that down for us, Don. Now, earlier you said that for the Biden administration is cleaning up the water. Uh, what's that about? Okay, yeah, uh, just a quick one here. Seems like uh, President Joe Biden is working to clean up the drinking water uh, of the United States. That administration has announced $5.8 billion that is going to go to states territories and tribes to clean drinking water, improve wastewater and sanitation, and as well as replacing lead pipes and remove contaminants. Now, the funding comes from the 2021 bipartisan legislation that designated $50 billion toward improving the country's water infrastructure. Uh, throughout the country, there's actually more than 2.2 million miles of underground pipes that carry drinking water and more than 16,000 treatment plants that handle wastewater. But the system has been receiving poor grades for decades. Uh, the Environmental Protection Agency says many of the problems stem from a lack of investment. Wow, fascinating area of inquiry here. We look forward to hearing more about that. Thank you so much for coming in, Don. Always great to speak with you. Yeah, my pleasure. NCD Business Host, thank you, Don. Now, Nike is cutting about 1,700 jobs in an attempt to shed $2 billion in costs. American Airlines says it'll lay off 656 employees, all at a time when the latest jobs report indicates that over 8 million Americans are working two jobs. To talk about the economy, earlier I spoke with Jim Nels, an economic analyst and supply chain consultant. Jim, good to see you. Now, we've seen tech companies announcing layoffs and even UPS announcing 12,000 jobs being cut due to a drop in package volume and now Nike. So what do all these mass layoffs signal? I think it signals that the U.S. economy is, is finally starting to weaken uh, given all the pressures that the economy has been under. If you look at what happened last year, you were losing high tech jobs, you were losing banking jobs, very, very white collar types of jobs. Now we're looking at UPS cutting 12,000 jobs. Oh, and by the way, their drivers just signed a brand new contract to get new wages. So they, their wages went up and then 12,000 people are gonna go away. We're seeing folks such as Spirit Airways and JetBlue try to buy out uh, their flight attendants so that they can uh, furlough them. We're seeing companies like Mattel, the toy company starting to lay people off. And I think this parallels very well with the report we saw from January's consumer spending 
which was down significantly compared to December. So I think people are finally saying this, the, the economy is not going to get better anytime soon. Inflation is horrible. We've got to change our budgeting as, as a household. And therefore, they're spending less money, which then leads to companies start to lay people off. So how come the wages can't seem to cover the rising cost of you know, food, fuel, shelter? Because they're up almost 20% over the last two and a half years. And it's very, very difficult to raise prices by, or to, excuse me, to raise wages at that same rate, because then that just puts more upward pressure on pricing. So what we're seeing companies do is they're laying people off. They're pushing more and more people to part time. And if the, the woman running for Senate in Cal, uh, California, Barbara Lee, has her way, she wants a $50 per hour minimum wage. That'll put even more poor Americans out of work. And these job numbers will look amazing. Um, the ones we have now will look amazing compared to what they will be if they get a $50 an hour wage. Why does the jobs report make it look better than the market really is? Well, there are a couple of things here. One is, if you look at what's happened under the Biden administration, they significantly reduced the number of jobs in follow-on reports. So they'll announce that in January, for example, 353,000 jobs were added. And then in March, they'll revise that number down to say, 100,000. I believe in 2023, they revised downward over 500,000 jobs. The other thing that you see is, like I mentioned, if you are working three jobs, that, that means that that counts as three jobs. That doesn't count as one person working three. It counts as three people working one job. So therefore, it inflates the number. Jim Nels, economic analyst and supply chain consultant, thank you so much for your time. And up ahead, a widow of a, of a Haitian president is indicted in his assassination. A judge's report charges dozens of individuals in the killing. A court hearing begins in the UK for WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange as he makes a last-ditch effort to avoid extradition to the US. A major strike in South Korea as thousands of trainee doctors walk off the job to protest the country's medical school quotas. More in just a moment, here on NTD News Today. The widow of former Haitian President Jovenel Moise has been indicted for his murder, along with the ex-prime minister and former chief of police. According to a judge's report released on Monday, dozens of suspects were charged in the 2021 assassination. Here's the story. Hope that my husband a judge in Haiti has accused the country's former first lady of being complicit in the killing of her husband, then-president Jovenel Moïse. Moïse was shot dead in 2021 when armed men broke into his bedroom in a raid that also injured his wife, Martine. A 122-page judge order shared with local media this week probing the Moïse assassination charged some 50 people for their roles in it. They include the former first lady, who the document said conspired with former Prime Minister Claude Joseph to kill Moïse in order to take over the presidency herself. Martin Moïse, who hasn't responded to Reuters' request for comment, is a vocal critic of the new administration. She has previously criticized unjust arrests and political persecutions. Meanwhile, Joseph, the former PM, told the Miami Herald that the president's de facto successor Prime Minister Achille Henry was the main beneficiary of these accusations. He said Henri was now weaponizing the Haitian justice system to persecute opponents in a classic coup d'etat. A spokesperson for Henri's office said the judge was independent and was free to issue his order in accordance with the law and his conscience. 
A separate case on Mohiza's killing is being tried in Miami. Six of 11 defendants have pleaded guilty to a plot to send Colombian mercenaries to kidnap Mohiz, a plan which was at the 11th hour changed to a plot to murder him. The conspirators had, according to US charges, sought to replace Mohiz with Haitian-American pastor Christian Emmanuel Sanon. And now for a shift in gears, we have some short headlines from the UK, Germany and other European countries. Russia's Federal Security Service, or FSB, has detained a woman with dual Russian-U.S. citizenship in the city of Yekaterinburg on suspicion of treason. Russian state media claims the woman was raising funds for Ukraine's armed forces. The FSB accuses the 33-year-old Los Angeles resident of being involved in providing financial assistance to a foreign state in activities directed against the security of Russia. The statement also said the money collected was to be spent on the Ukrainian war effort on items such as medicine, weapons and ammunition. There was no immediate comment from the U.S. Embassy in Moscow or the State Department. Russian media outlets did not name the woman. The Moscow City Court has rejected U.S. journalist Evan Gerskovich's appeal against extended detention. He'll remain in custody until March 30th. The court ruled today upholding the lower court's decision to extend his detention. Gerskovich was arrested in March 2023 while on a reporting trip. Russia's main security service accused him of trying to obtain state secrets. Gerskovich, his employer, The Wall Street Journal, and the U.S. strenuously deny the charge. If convicted, he faces up to 20 years in prison. A boost for Ukraine and its war against Russia. Canada said it'll donate over 800 Sky Ranger R-70 drones to help Kyiv's defense. Canada's defense minister said the drones are valued at 95 million Canadian dollars or over 70 million USD. The donation was funded by military aid announced by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau last year. In total, Canada has committed over $7 billion in aid to Ukraine since February 2022, including more than $1.7 billion in military assistance. Julian Assange, the founder of WikiLeaks, is fighting against his extradition from Britain to the United States. This could be his last chance after 13 years of battling in English courts. A group of Assange's supporters protested in Brussels today as the court hearing began. Assange's wife said his life is at risk, drawing parallels with the case of Russia's Alexei Navalny. U.S. prosecutors seek to put Assange on trial for releasing confidential U.S. military records and diplomatic cables. They argue that the leaks endangered lives and that his actions are criminal. Supporters see him as anti-establishment hero and journalists persecuted for exposing U.S. wrongdoing. Assange's legal struggles began in 2010. He spent seven years in Ecuador's embassy before being arrested in 2019. He has since been held in a maximum security jail in London. In Germany, Lufthansa's ground staff are on strike yet again this month. The airline could only operate 10% of flights at affected airports like Frankfurt and Munich. The strike is due to run until Wednesday morning when wage talks are set to resume. Over 100,000 passengers will be affected. The labor union demands a wage increase of over 12% plus one-time payment to offset inflation. Police in Spain are investigating the disappearance of an American woman in Madrid. 40-year-old Anna Maria Knezevich Henao went missing February 2nd. Her brother says she was supposed to take a train to Barcelona with a friend on February 5th, but his sister never showed up at the Madrid station. 
A missing persons report was filed with authorities on the same day. Family and friends say they contacted the missing woman's husband days after her disappearance and learned that he was in Serbia. A Spanish government official says authorities have contacted other countries for information. It's unclear if they suspect foul play. First grade can be really tough in Sweden. For a group of students, it includes jumping into the icy water of a frozen over lake. The fully clothed ice bath is part of their official curriculum. It's survival training. It has a real-world application in Sweden because fatal accidents continue to happen when people fall through the ice while skating or ice fishing. One important skill the students learn in this training is how to use ice bikes to pull themselves out of the water. And Taiwan is condemning China for boarding a Taiwanese tourist boat. Here's what a Taiwanese official said on Tuesday. It hurt the feelings of our people, created panic among the people, and it was not in the interest of the people on both sides of the Taiwan Strait. Tensions are rising around Kinmen Island, which lies a short distance off China's coast but is controlled by Taiwan. Yesterday, Chinese Coast Guard members boarded a Taiwanese tourist boat near Kinmen, spent half an hour checking the ship's route plan, certificate and crew licenses. They got on our boat and delayed us for half an hour. The Chinese Communist Party said over the weekend its Coast Guard would patrol Kinmen. That's after two Chinese nationals died when their speedboat capsized last week. They ventured too close to the island and were being chased by Taiwan's Coast Guard. Taiwan's defense minister says they won't respond with military action. More than 1,600 trainee doctors in South Korea's major hospitals are on strike today. They're protesting a government plan to admit more students to medical schools. They argue this plan could lead to unnecessary medical procedures and undermine the finances of the National Health Insurance Plan. Representatives for the doctors held an emergency meeting in the capital, Seoul, to discuss what to do next. Here's a closer look. On Tuesday, health officials confirmed that nearly half of the country's 13,000 doctors and interns at large hospitals had handed in resignations, and around a quarter of them had left their workplaces. The second vice health minister said there had already been 34 cases where the walkout had affected medical procedures, including 25 cancellations. Currently, around 3,000 people are admitted to medical school every year in South Korea. However, the plan the trainees are protesting would boost admissions by 2,000 starting in the 2025 academic year, eventually hitting 10,000 more in a decade's time. South Korea had only 2.6 doctors per 1,000 people in 2022, far below average for countries in the OECD. It sparked worry over an acute shortage of doctors for pediatrics, emergency units and clinics outside the greater Seoul area. A recent Gallup Korea poll showed over three-quarters of South Koreans back the plan for more medical students. Meanwhile, Tuesday's walkout has presented a real threat of delays to surgical operations and patient treatment. The prime minister pleaded with doctors to not, quote, hold the lives and health of the people hostage and ordered emergency measures including more telemedicine, more operations at public hospitals, and opening up military clinics. After the break, a total solar eclipse is coming on April 8th, and millions of people in North America will be in the path of it. How you can catch the spectacle. Astronomers discovered what could be the brightest object in the universe. A black hole at its heart swallows the equivalent of one sun every day. 
Early cherry blossoms in unseasonably warm weather. We bring you footage of the seasonal delight from Tokyo, Japan. More in just a moment here on NTD News Today. Florida Sheriff's deputy says he was just doing his job when he resuscitated an infant earlier this month. The officer quickly came to the aid of a mom and two children after a motorcycle crashed into their vehicle. No! Where's the other baby? I just heard it breathe. You got it. Come on. Body camera footage you just saw there captured Charlotte County Deputy Sergeant Dave Musgrove's heroism on February 8th. The deputy was traveling on a state highway near Englewood that night when a motorcycle passed him at an estimated speed of over 100 miles per hour. Seconds later, a camera in the deputy's vehicle captured a flash of light as the motorcycle crashed into another vehicle. Musgrove arrived at the scene, opened a rear passenger door, and pulled a child out of a booster seat. Musgrove brought a second infant out in her car seat and performed chest compressions until she resumed breathing. On April 8th, Millions of people in North America will be in the path of a total solar eclipse. Stretching from Mexico into the United States and Canada, the moon will completely blot out the sun. Here's what you need to know about it. In a total solar eclipse, the moon passes between the sun and Earth. That covers the face of the sun along a small path of our planet's surface called the path of totality. The daytime sky turns dark as a result. In places along the path of totality, people will be able to view the sun's corona, the star's outer atmosphere, which is typically not visible because of solar brightness. People observing from outside the path of totality will see a partial eclipse, but a cloudy day could spoil the view. Amazing. According to NASA, the April 8 eclipse will begin over the South Pacific. The path will reach Mexico's Pacific coast around 11.07 a.m. Pacific time before entering the United States in Texas. Its path then takes it through various states, including Oklahoma, Illinois, Kentucky, New York, and Maine. The path then enters Canada in Ontario and journeys through the eastern provinces. It will exit on the Atlantic coast of Newfoundland at 5.16 p.m. Newfoundland time. A partial eclipse is due to be visible for people in all 48 contiguous U.S. states. It is unsafe to look directly at the bright sun without using specialized eye protection. Experts say viewing an eclipse through a camera lens, binoculars, or telescope without making use of a special purpose solar filter can cause severe eye injury. They advise using safe solar viewing glasses or a safe handheld solar viewer. And note that regular sunglasses are not safe for viewing the sun. The only moment it is considered safe for people to remove eye protection during a total solar eclipse is the brief time when the moon completely blocks the sun's surface. After this one, the next total solar eclipse viewable from the contiguous United States will not occur until 2044. Want an up-close and personal view of the total solar eclipse? A Delta Airlines flight this spring will provide you with that opportunity. 
This April 8th, Delta is offering a special flight from Austin, Texas to Detroit, Michigan. The flight will be specifically operated on an aircraft with extra large windows. The flight is timed for the best chance of safely viewing the solar eclipse at its peak, spending as much time as possible directly within the path of totality. The airline says it has five additional routes that same day that will also provide good chances to see the eclipse in the air. And astronomers have discovered what may be the brightest object in the universe. A black hole at its heart is so big and growing so fast that it swallows the equivalent of one sun every day. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more on the natural phenomenon. Researchers at the Australian National University say Quasar J0529-4351 is the brightest object astronomers have ever seen. For decades, astronomers around the world have mistaken it for a star. It's a time when we astronomers get to be children again, in that we can look at an object and be like, hey, we expected this to be just a normal star because of how bright it looks, but in fact it's within 1.5 billion years of the, of the universe's existence. Quasars are the bright cores at the center of distant galaxies that can be seen through telescopes. They are powered by hungry black holes which swallow all the matter that surrounds them. The process creates so much energy that it emits vast amounts of light. This outshines tens of thousands of galaxies just like the Milky Way. So this is, this is 10,000 times brighter than our entire Milky Way. And the Milky Way is 100 billion stars. So this is one supermassive black hole versus a hundred billion stars. Samuel Lai, the study's co-author, says the size of the quasar is breathtaking compared to others studied before. The quasar is a supermassive black hole. It's a black hole that's, that's you know, between millions to billions of solar masses and times the mass of the sun. So maybe a billion times the mass of the sun. But this guy is 17 billion times the mass of the sun. Lai says the discovery adds to our growing understanding of our universe. In simple language, it means that without these black holes, our galaxy, as we know it, wouldn't be what it is today. And in fact, all galaxies would be very different without their supermassive black holes. The quasar is 12 billion light years away and has been around since the early days of the universe. One light year is equal to 5.8 trillion miles. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. In Japan, Tokyo experienced unusually warm weather today. This prompted many residents to take a moment to snap photos of early blooming cherry blossoms. Japan's meteorological agency recording a high of 75 degrees Fahrenheit in the center of Tokyo. But temperatures in Tokyo are forecast to plunge rapidly later in the week. The weather agency forecasting lows of 37 degrees Fahrenheit by the weekend. And a zoo in Omaha, Nebraska says it removed 70 coins from the stomach of a 36-year-old alligator. His name is Thibodeau. The procedure came after the foreign metal objects were identified in his stomach during a routine exam. The zoo says he was anesthetized and a plastic pipe was placed to protect his mouth and safely pass the tools used to access the coins. They included a camera to help guide them. All 70 coins were successfully removed. Thibodeau recovered well, and he's back in his habitat at Henry Dorley Zoo and Aquarium. And the zoo is asking guests not to throw coins into any bodies of water there. I'm glad he's doing well. He must have been worth a lot of money during that time. Yeah, pretty good at collecting that cash. All right, well, if you have any news tips or feedback for our show, please feel free to email us at news.today at ntd.com, and we'll see you next time.
Welcome to NTD News Today. Here are our top stories. Latest polls show former President Trump likely to win the South Carolina primary this weekend as his Republican rival Nikki Haley vows to stay in the race. A group of Republican lawmakers urged the Biden campaign to get off TikTok. They say it's dangerous and sets a bad example for Americans. Why is immigration and customs enforcement feeling stymied by New York City laws passed under former Mayor Bill de Blasio? We hear from the director of ICE's NYC field office. Fentanyl is killing people in cities across the U.S. Indigenous tribes are hit especially hard. An inside look at the synthetic drug crisis. A court hearing begins in the U.K. for WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange as he makes a last-ditch effort to avoid extradition to the U.S. This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stephania Cox and Chris Beers. Hi, I'm David Lamb. I'm sitting in for Chris Beers. And to begin the show, South Carolina's Republican primary will be held this Saturday. Former President Trump appears likely to win yet another contest, this time in rival Nikki Haley's home state. And we'll cut. A poll released last week by Winthrop University shows 65% of likely voters in the state support the nomination of former President Trump, a 36% lead over his opponent, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley. So let's do what we know South Carolina does. Haley has been campaigning intensely in her home state, where she served as governor for six years. Do we want more of the same, or do we want to go in a new direction? But so far, she's been unable to close the gap in the polls. Trump has secured several key endorsements in the Palmetto State, most notably former presidential candidate and South Carolina Senator Tim Scott. Though her chances of winning South Carolina are slim, Haley has said she will not back out of the race. Bolstered by support from her donors, she's looking to campaign into Super Tuesday and possibly beyond. I promise you this, on Sunday I'm headed to Michigan, and then we're going to Super Tuesday states, and we're going to keep on going. Statements to Reuters said some of Haley's donors believe Trump's criminal cases could force him out of the race, leaving Haley as the only GOP presidential candidate. Everybody's telling me, why don't you just get out? I will never give up. Both candidates after South Carolina will look to Super Tuesday on March 5th, when over 15 states and territories go to the polls. The civil fraud case against former President Trump could have long-lasting implications for the state of New York. Here's venture capitalist Kevin O'Leary telling Fox News what he thought. New York was already a loser state, like California is a loser state. There are many loser states because of policy, high taxes, uncompetitive regulation. It was already on the top of the list of being a loser state. I would never invest in New York now, and I'm not the only person saying that. O'Leary called the verdict against Trump appalling, unjust, and un-American. He argued that there's no rationale for the ruling. The entrepreneur also warned that the ruling could spark an exodus of businesses from the state. Trump reacted to O'Leary's comments. The former president wrote on Truth Social, Kevin O'Leary is so great, he said, and tells it like it is. Businesses will flee NYC and state after the corrupt judge's ruling. 
Following Trump's verdict in New York, his supporters have launched a GoFundMe campaign to help pay his growing legal expenses. The campaign has raised more than $670,000 in four days. It aims to raise the $355 million that Trump was fined. Elena Cardone, the wife of prominent real estate investor Grant Cardone, set up the fundraiser on February 16th. She wrote on the GoFundMe page, I stand unwaveringly with President Donald Trump in the face of what I see as unprecedented and unfair treatment by certain judicial elements in New York. And Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley is speaking in Greenville, South Carolina. Her campaign says the speech focuses on the state of the presidential race. We're now going live to that. Well, I'm not. Far from it, and I'm here to tell you why. I'm running for president because we have a country to save. Since the start of my campaign, I've been focused on the real issues our country faces. The ones that determine whether America will thrive or spiral out. I'm talking about the millions of students who don't know how to read or do basic math. The families who can't afford groceries, much less a first home. The total lawlessness on our southern border. I'm talking about the murders in our cities, the fentanyl on our streets, the children who've been killed in their mom's car by stray bullets. And I'm talking about the American weakness that led to wars in Europe and the Middle East and the urgent need to restore our strength before war spreads and draws America further in. These are the challenges I'm here to tackle. But instead of focusing on how to make America stronger tomorrow, some people want to know if I'm going to cave today. We've all heard the calls for me to drop out. We all know where they're coming from. The political elite, the party bosses, the cheerleaders in the commentator world. The argument is familiar. They say I haven't won a state, that my path to victory is slim. They point to the primary polls and say I'm only delaying the inevitable. Why keep fighting when the battle was apparently over after Iowa? Look, I get it. In politics, the herd mentality is enormously strong. A lot of Republican politicians have surrendered to it. The pressure on them was way too much. They didn't want to be left out of the club. Of course, many of the same politicians who now publicly embrace Trump privately dread him. They know what a disaster he's been and will continue to be for our party. They're just too afraid to say it out loud. Well, I'm not afraid to say the hard truths out loud. I feel no need to kiss the ring. I have no fear of Trump's retribution. I'm not... I'm not looking for anything from him. My own political future is of zero concern. So I hear what the political class says, but I hear from the American people too. 
I've heard from a retired Army medic who looked evil in the eye when he says we're headed toward disaster, that American lives are on the line, he knows what he's talking about. He knows we can't afford more of the same. That's why he told me to give him hell. I, I've heard from a mom who promised to email me every day, and she does. She just wants a return to normalcy. She wants me to keep running for the sake of her four-year-old son. She hopes he'll see the, quote, America she grew up in, an America that's strong and proud and united in purpose. And I've heard from a high school student who just last week came to hear me speak. She asked me to sign a note to her teacher explaining her absence. <laughs> After growing up amid the chaos and anger of the last few years, she finally has hope that America will make it if we make the right choice. I'm constantly hearing from Americans like these, hundreds a day, thousands a week, and hundreds of thousands since I declared my candidacy. They see the same polls as me, but more importantly, they have the same belief as me. They believe in America. They believe America can do so much better, that we must do better. And they know when the country's future is on the line, you don't drop out. You keep fighting. In fact, you fight harder than ever. That's why I refuse to quit. South Carolina will vote on Saturday, but on Sunday, I'll still be running for president. I'm not going anywhere. I'm campaigning every day until the last person votes because I believe in a better America and a brighter future for our kids. Nothing good in life comes easy. I'm willing to take the cuts, the bruises, and the name-calling, because the only way you get to the blessing is by going through the pain. Dropping out would be the easy route. I've never taken the easy route. I've been the underdog in every race I've ever run. I've always been David taking on Goliath. And like David, I'm not just fighting someone bigger than me. I'm fighting for something bigger than myself. I'm used to people questioning my intentions, so I'll make a few things clear. Some people used to say I was running because I really wanted to be vice president. I think I've pretty well settled that question. Other people say I'm trying to set up a future presidential run. How does that even work? If I was running for a bogus reason, I would have dropped out a long time ago. The rest of the fellas already did that. They have their own plans. I don't judge them. But I'm still here. I'm fighting for what I know is right 
and I don't care what the party leaders and political elites want. I'll keep fighting until the American people close the door. That day is not today, and it won't be on Saturday, not by a long shot. The presidential primaries have barely begun. Just three states have voted. Three. That's it. After this weekend, we'll be at four. That's not a lot. In the 10 days after South Carolina, another 21 states and territories will vote. People have a right to have their voices heard. And they deserve a real choice, not a Soviet-style election where there's only one candidate and he gets 99% of the vote. We don't anoint kings in this country. We have elections. And Donald Trump, of all people, should know we don't rig elections. Yeah. Americans of every belief and background are tired of our national mess. They don't want more chaos and craziness. They worry about a national collapse. If I weren't in the race, we'd be reading the exact same storyline every day until November 5th. There would be widespread reports of Americans suffering from a bad case of Biden-Trump fatigue. And it would be true. A stunning 70% of the country doesn't want a Biden-Trump rematch. The majority of Americans don't just dislike one candidate. They dislike both. As a country, we've never seen such dissatisfaction with the leading candidates. We've never had so many Americans mired in pessimism and division. We still have a chance to restore their faith. I will fight as long as that chance exists. Now, I know what Donald Trump is saying. He wants an election with no opponent. But that's not what the voters are saying. Despite being a de facto incumbent, Donald Trump lost 49% of the vote in Iowa. In New Hampshire, Trump lost 46% of the vote. That's not good. We're talking about almost half of our voters. What does it say about an incumbent who's losing nearly half of his party? It spells disaster in November. We shouldn't silence those voters like Trump wants. They have the right to keep speaking out. Trump sees this. That's why he and his allies are now trying a different tack. They're saying, I'm helping Joe Biden by staying in. Let's unpack that for a second. First things first, Joe Biden is doing more damage to himself than any Republican ever could. Every time he opens his mouth, he sounds like his mind is closing up shop. The Democrats are getting weaker by holding a coronation for Biden. Republicans will get stronger through a vigorous competition. We have plenty of time to hash this out. If the race ended today, we would have the longest general election in history. There are still eight and a half months before election day. 
do we really want to spend every day from now until November watching America's mo two most disliked politicians duke it out? No. 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 no sane person wants that. But there's another reason Trump is wrong. At the end of the day, the only candidate who's helping Joe Biden is Donald Trump. Because Trump is the only Republican Biden can beat. The Democrats know it. They don't even try and conceal it. They don't even try to conceal the glee at the prospect of running against Trump. They want to win. So they want the guy they've already beaten time and again. Trump knows it too, but he won't admit it. True to form, he's taking out his anger on others. He's getting meaner and more offensive by the day. He's trying to bully me and anyone who supports me. He says they'll be barred from MAGA permanently. That's not the way you win elections. Well, I've dealt with bullies my entire life. They don't intimidate me. They only motivate me further. And I've never met a bully I couldn't take on. There are those who will try and paint me as never Trump. That's not who I am, never have been. I supported Trump in 2016 and in 2020. I was proud to serve America in his cabinet. My purpose has never been to stop Trump at all costs. Like most Americans, I have a handful of serious concerns about the former president. But I have countless serious concerns about the current president. Joe Biden has turned our country upside down. It's not normal for millions of migrants to illegally cross our border without being stopped. It's not normal for our schools to be more focused on gender pronouns than reading and math. It's not normal to have skyrocketing prices and soaring crime. And it's not normal to have wars raging in Europe and the Middle East. All of that is on Joe Biden. But he's not the only one who's replaced normalcy with chaos. Donald Trump has done. And here to speak with me about the presidential race and the next major step, South Carolina's Republican primaries, we have Nathaniel Cogley, Associate Professor of Political Science at Tarleton State University. Nathaniel, great to have you with us. First up, what's your take on what you just heard here? Nikki Haley saying she's staying in the race no matter what till the last person votes. Thanks for having me. Um, it's not surprising that she's going to exude confidence as long as she's in it. Um, the voters like someone who's confident, who can uh, sell a potential victory. But we should think of this more. I think Donald Trump. Than a reflection of reality. Um, as she herself described, um, she, she doesn't really have a great path forward. She did not explain how she's going to have enough delegates at the convention to be the nominee. She made a different type of argument for why she's in, to give people a choice, so this is not a coronation. But that does not exactly explain her path. 
I think she did make a good case that clearly she's not trying to be Trump's vice president. Um, she's not building a bridge there. Um, she's also not setting herself up for a future run. But she did not actually make a case for why she's going to be the Republican nominee. And she didn't dig into other intentions that she might have in terms of working with uh, the national security state and working with donors um, for alternate reasons. Yeah, I mean, she sort of um, cast some shade over the other candidates who had dropped out for dropping out, but hasn't really enunciated how she would ha continue her funding. That is a huge question at play here. How, will she continue getting funding if her numbers don't increase? I think you're making a very good point. And, and she did highlight numbers to say Trump lost 49% of Iowa he lost 46% of New Hampshire, and she tried to claim that, you know, Trump is not strong, but actually the candidates that were getting a lot of those percentages, uh, Ramaswamy and Governor DeSantis, dropped out and endorsed Trump. So uh, he's building momentum. He's going to win by even larger margins. She didn't have that 49% and 46%. She had a fraction of it. And so it's just not going well. Uh, the pressure's building on her. If she would like to stay in here and, and give some competition to President Trump, that's fine, and competition can make him stronger. But she's going to be putting on a strong face here until it's all over. And uh, she has said in the speech just now that her own political future is of zero concern, and that is in direct response to pundits out there who are saying, you know, she has that to consider. What do you make of this this uh, position that she's taking? Well, I think to a degree, she, she may not have political calculations anymore. You know, she's been a governor. She's been a U.S. ambassador to the United Nations in Trump's first term. There's other career paths that may be of interest, whether she's looking to be a commentator on mainstream media, whether she's looking to continue to work with Boeing and the national security state. She has other relationships and other potential for uh, you know, a, a successful career than politics and winning elections. So she may very well have these other calculations in her mind while she sticks around and, and burns bridges in the Republican Party. And we heard earlier in the speech, right at the beginning, she listed out her policy stances and topics that she's uh, wanting to put forward and remind voters of. One of them was guns, which I found interesting. You know, that's a sticking point for Republicans. I'm not sure exactly what's her stance on that. But how do you think, you know, her particular take on these issues that are important to Republicans will fare in this upcoming primary and how it compares with Trump? Well, she's uh, identified some positions around guns, around education. What's interesting, she talked about the border and lack of enforcement on the border. Um, but these positions are already out there, and it's hard for her to, to sell Republicans that she's in a better alternative than Trump on the border. I mean, people have seen Trump try to fight that fight. Um, so she's going to continue to try to stake out positions where she might be different than Trump. Her problem, though, in South Carolina is she's very well known. Her name recognition is very high, which did give her an initial uh, uh, strong foundation to start with. But it's going to be hard to change people's opinions. They already know her well. They know Trump well. They're already baked in. Early voting has already started. And given all the totality of the factors that are already in place, Trump already has a two-to-one lead in the polling here, and it's a five-to-one lead nationally. 
Right, great to speak with you, Nathaniel Cogley, Associate Professor of Political Science at Tarleton State University. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Now, a group of Republican lawmakers want President Biden to deactivate his campaign's TikTok account. They said in a letter that Biden was ignoring TikTok's well-established national security risks. Biden's campaign joined the short video app earlier this month. The campaign's initial video was seen 9.6 million times, and it has about 162,000 followers. Efforts in Congress to ban TikTok or create new tools to restrict it have stalled. Last month, TikTok told Congress that 170 million Americans now use the app, up from 150 million a year earlier. The White House noted last week that there is still a ban on the use of TikTok on government devices. The Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States demanded last year that TikTok's Chinese owners sell their shares or face the prospect of an app ban, but the administration has taken no action on this. Coming up, a jury deliberates over whether or not Trump officials from the NRA can keep their jobs. We talked to our legal correspondent for the latest. Why is immigration and customs enforcement feeling stymied by New York City laws passed under former mayor Bill de Blasio? We hear more from the director of ICE's New York City field office. A New York jury resumes deliberations today in the corruption trial against the National Rifle Association, or NRA, its former CEO, and other officials. We turn now to our legal correspondent, Arlene Richards. Arlene, thank you for joining us, and you ladies look great. Apparently, I missed the memo. <laughs> right. <laughs> Purple, it's all the go. You have great taste, And so do say. you. <laughs> well, Arlene, to begin with, what are these officials being accused of? So the former head of the NRA, Wayne LaPierre, and other executives are being accused of taking lavish vacations with donor money and other perks as well. So Letitia James, the attorney general, started this investigation in 2019, and then she filed the lawsuit in 2020. This is a civil matter, it's not a criminal matter. And she is seeking uh, extensive financial uh, uh, penalties as well as removal from office of the other executives and she wants them banned from working for any uh, nonprofit organizations. Now Wayne LaPierre, the leader, he did step down just before the trial started and that's going to be important later on. Um, but another thing that's important is that Letitia James campaigned on one of these promises to get the NRA and this was raised during the trial but the judge said that her bias has no bearing on the actual facts in this case. So the executives, executives were being accused of using NRA money. What examples did, did they show up in the trial? So during the trial, in addition to the lavish vacations, they also said they were taking exclusive trips. They were whining and dining executives from other organizations and, and companies that they were dealing with. Uh, they were using uh, luxury items like yachts and private jets. Uh, and the uh, leader was buying expensive designer suits. And all of these expenses were allegedly coming out of donor funds. But so what are some of the key points that have been argued by both sides in the case? So in the final arguments, the state argued that these corrupt actions actually destroyed the trust of the NRA and its members. So they give one example. They say the chief uh, financial officer had the, had the uh, duty to oversee the spending, and he decided to look 
the other way and not you know, go forward in investigating some of the spending that was going on. And, and he also actually told some of his subordinates not to look into certain expenses. So they also say that uh, he allegedly allowed this Wayne LaPierre to spend millions and millions of dollars from the NRA donor funds. Now, on the defense side, they say it was not their intent to misuse the funds. Uh, Wayne LaPierre did admit that he did this kind of spending, but he justifies it and says he needed these designer suits, for example, so that he could be on par with the kind of people that he was dealing with and meeting with. Uh, he needed to have private jets because he's, his uh, life had been threatened and he needed the security. Um, but Letitia James says that this was all done intentionally and knowingly, and the law, although it does provide for making mistakes, uh, she says there's no mistakes here. So we'll have to see what the jury decides. Arlene Richards, legal correspondent, you know, keep us and the viewers informed. Thank you for joining us. All right, thank you. I like that purple. Yeah, thanks. You too. <laughs> right back at you. <laughs> now, seven of eight migrants charged in an attack on New York City, City police officers are now behind bars. After the attack happened in January, several suspects were released without bail days after the arrest. For more on the case, NTD spoke with Kenneth Janalo, the NYC field office director and Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE. Director Janalo, thank you so much for having us here today. Uh, some of the illegal immigrants who attacked these NYPD officers recently um, were, were released instead of being deported. Uh, do you believe the lack of cooperation from NYPD with ICE has anything to do with this? I mean, right now, uh, what people need to understand that ICE ERO in New York City, um, we are uh, ensuring the welfare and the public safety of everyone that's in the community and we look and would like to have cooperation from our law enforcement partners especially NYPD um, the job we do is extremely important to the community um, but obviously with sanctuary policies that are in place it limits the cooperation between uh, all of our law enforcement partners in New York City and ERO I mean I w I would wish to have, uh, you know, the mayor of New York City, the governor of New York State, revisit these policies, and maybe we can once again begin to collaborate on uh, cases that involve criminal non-citizens. Got it. And can you just can you talk about the net effect of these laws under the sanctuary city policies on public safety? Well, like I said, um, ERO New York City, we're out there every day uh, ensuring the safety of our residents, citizens here in New York City and the surrounding areas. Um, the fact that you don't have collaboration or cooperation with uh, our main law enforcement partners in the cities, we can't get information on a timely basis. Um, if they're not honoring our detainers, they're being released right back into the communities. And yet you mentioned these detainers not being honored. Um, Republican Congresswoman Nicole Maliotakis said about 108 of these uh, detainers weren't honored in 2023. What does that do for your to your operations here? Well, I, I mean, if you take a look, if, we, if someone's going to Rikers Island, let's say they've been charged with a crime and they're being uh, sent to Rikers Island for a local hearing, um, we would lodge a detainer along with the detainer. We would lodge a uh, administrative warrant to uh, accompany the detainer and basically it would 
tell the law enforcement agency, in this case it would be NYPD, please hold the individual for when he's done with his local charges and contact ICE and we'll come and pick the individual up. But because they don't have um, the ability to cooperate us or if they will not accept the administrative warrant, um, they just release the individual back into the community without contacting ICE and letting us know. Do you have any specific examples of, of, of individuals who were released back into the community um, you know, that may have gone on to commit more crimes? Um, I don't have specific examples, but the recidivism rate of individuals that are released that have been committing crimes is high. Um, and they go right back to uh, the areas that they used to live in and they take advantage of the people that they committing crimes against once again. So um, I don't have specifics as per, as per case-wise. Got it. All right. Director Ginalo, thank you so much. No problem. Thank you. Coming up, Australia announces billions more in additional money to expand its Navy fleet. We'll have the details soon when we return. A court hearing begins in the UK for WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange as he makes a last-ditch effort to avoid extradition to the US. More in just a moment here on NTD News Today. Australia says it will inject an additional billions of dollars more into building its Navy fleet over the next decade, while also expanding the country's shipbuilding industry. Today, the Albanese government is announcing an increase in the number of warships in the Royal Australian Navy to being the largest fleet since the end of the Second World War. And so a component of today's announcement is that we are, we are increasing defence spending by an additional $11.1 billion over the decade. The fleet will increase to 26 warships from the current 11. Australia has sought to bolster its defence capabilities amid concerns about rising global geopolitical tensions and the Chinese regime's growing influence among some Pacific Island nations. The country's defence minister says ships known as large, optionally crewed surface vessels will significantly boost the Navy's long-range strike capacity. The ships can be operated remotely and are being developed by the United States. This latest funding would bring the co total cost for the country's future surface fleet to 36 billion U.S. dollars. And Volt Typhoon, a cyber theft group based in China and backed by the Chinese Communist Party, is, a, is attempting to disrupt and even disable America's critical infrastructure. That's according to federal security agencies. Earlier, I discussed this issue with Epic Times contributor and author of the China Crisis, James Gorey. James, thank you for joining us. Now, what exactly is the Chinese Communist Party telling this cyber theft group to do? Uh, it's called Volt Typhoon. Um, they're tasking them with infiltrating and perhaps uh, destabilizing or disabling our critical infrastructure. What includes water, electricity, power, communications, the internet, military communications. Uh, so it's a, it's a big deal. The CCP's surveillance state has mass control over its own population's personal information, which it uses to maintain power and oppress the Chinese people. Tell us, what could the Chinese regime do with this information from the U.S.? Well, it's not so much the information, it's the ability to inhibit our ability to uh, communicate, 
to run our, our, our infrastructure, water, power, electricity, uh, communication. So it's really a military uh, strategic threat. It's, it's their goal. Of, the goal of Volt Typhoon is to disrupt or uh, interrupt our ability to um, respond militarily, to communicate, to, to launch weapons, to um, get visibility into the internet, to communicate across, across the board. So it's a very, it's a very comprehensive threat. James, how likely is it that a cyber attack like the one we're talking about could spark military warfare between China and the U.S.? Well, it would be, as, as I mentioned in my article, it would most likely precede a kinetic warfare uh, attack. In other words, you want to disable the, uh, the enemy, which is us. Uh, they want to disable our ability to respond. So it would probably precede a kinetic uh, warfare attack or attack on Taiwan as well. Um, that was the conclusion of the DOD, and I think they're, they're correct. What could these cyber attacks on U.S. infrastructure look like, and how could they affect Americans? Well, it, you know, the, the, the convergence between the digital and the physical worlds is, is complete. In other words, you can, you can disrupt the ability to have power, to, to generate power or to transfer that power. It's, with connected uh, circuitry, um, connect water, connect communication, satellites, control. It's, it's, as I said, it's very comprehensive and it's, it, it can disrupt you know, plants and processes and manufacturing, uh, transportation, grids and so forth. So it's very, very comprehensive. And this has been going on for a long time. The, the Volt Typhoon uh, um, advanced persistent threats have been present in the networks and the DoD networks, probably for five years, they think. And uh, just because they found a few doesn't mean they found them all. Um, if there's a few, there's probably more. James, the presidential election is just around the corner. Does this increase the risk of a cyber attack? Well, I think it's clear that uh, the Chinese and the Communist Party prefer to have Biden in office than, than Trump. Um, that that much is certain. Um, I find it interesting that this information comes out now. Um, now, supposedly we've known about it for a year or so, but uh, I think it certainly is, it, it doesn't bode well for our military readiness, and it doesn't bode well for our ability to defend ourselves. James Gorey, author of The China Crisis and contributor to the Epic Times, thank you so much for breaking this down for us. And in more China news, foreign direct investment into China plunging to historic lows. What's driving the downturn? More details coming tonight at 9.30 on NTD's China in Focus with Tiffany Meyer. And now for a shift in gears, we have some short headlines from the UK, Germany and other European countries. Russia's Federal Security Service, or FSB, has detained a woman with dual Russian-U.S. citizenship in the city of Yekaterinburg on suspicion of treason. Russian state media claims the woman was raising funds for Ukraine's armed forces. The FSB accuses the 33-year-old Los Angeles resident of being, quote, involved in providing financial assistance to a foreign state in activities directed against the security of Russia. The statement also said the money collected was to be spent on the Ukrainian war effort on items such as medicine, weapons and ammunition. There was no immediate comment from the U.S. Embassy in Moscow or the State Department. Russian media outlets did not name the woman. The Moscow City Court has rejected U.S. journalist Evan Gerskovich's appeal against extended detention. 
He'll remain in custody until March 30th. The court ruled today upholding the lower court's decision to extend his detention. Kurskovich was arrested in March 2023 while on a reporting trip. Russia's main security service accused him of trying to obtain state secrets. Gerskovich, his employer, The Wall Street Journal, and the U.S. strenuously deny the charge. If convicted, he faces up to 20 years in prison. And a boost for Ukraine in its war against Russia. Canada said it'll donate over 800 Sky Ranger R-70 drones to help Kyiv's defense. Canada's defense minister said the drones are valued at 95 million Canadian dollars, or over 70 million USD. The donation was funded by military aid announced by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau last year. In total, Canada has committed over $7 billion in aid to Ukraine since February 2022, including more than $1.7 billion in military assistance. Julian Assange, the founder of WikiLeaks, is fighting against his extradition from Britain to the United States. This could be his last chance after 13 years of battling in English courts. A group of Assange's supporters protested in Brussels today as the court hearing began. Assange's wife said his life is at risk, drawing parallels with the case of Russia's Alexei Navalny. U.S. prosecutors seek to push, put Assange on trial for releasing confidential U.S. military records and diplomatic cables. They argue that the leaks endangered lives and that his actions are criminal. Supporters see him as an anti-establishment hero and journalist persecuted for exposing U.S. wrongdoing. Assange's legal struggles began in 2010. He spent seven years in Ecuador's embassy before being arrested in 2019. He has since been held in a maximum security jail in London. And in Germany, Lufthansa's ground staff are on strike yet again this month. The airline could only operate 10% of flights at affected airports like Frankfurt and Munich. The strike is due to run until Wednesday morning, when wage talks are set to resume. Over 100,000 passengers will be affected. The labor union demands a wage increase of over 12%, plus a one-time payment to offset inflation. Police in Spain are investigating the disappearance of an American woman in Madrid. 40-year-old Ana Maria Knezovic Hanau went missing February 2nd. Her brother says she was supposed to take a train to Barcelona with a friend on February 5th, but his sister never showed up at the Madrid station. A missing persons report was filed with authorities on the same day. Family and friends say they contacted the missing woman's husband days after her disappearance and learned that he was in Serbia. A Spanish government official says authorities have contacted other countries for information. It's unclear if they suspect foul play. Coming up, a traditional woodworker keeps disappearing art alive while helping kids achieve success. Up with that next. And welcome back. Next, we'll delve into the healing power of woodworking. We hear from a veteran who shares with us the beauty and intricacy of this amazing craft. Let's take a look. Eric Hollenbeck is one of the last master craftsmen of a truly unique disappearing art. He is the proprietor of Blue Ox Millworks, one of the last Victorian mills in America employing traditional tools and techniques. Founded nearly 50 years ago, it reproduces identical components such as doors, windows, moldings, and columns for buildings that are up to several hundred years old. The company doesn't make a product line and everything is made to order. Much of the work focuses on government projects, including the National Trust, which has many historic buildings. 
a high school dropout and military veteran, Eric started the company with a $300 bank loan, initially as a salvage logging company. You see, that's not starting from zero. That's starting from a minus $300. <laughs> and, uh, and then I found the equipment that I needed in the woods around this county, thrown away and abandoned. I would bring the pieces of equipment here to the shop. I would rebuild them. I've always been good mechanically, always, my whole life. I would rebuild them, make them work again, and then teach myself how to use them. That's the process I went through. Now his work has also led him to become a television celebrity, with his restoration projects featuring on the Magnolia Network series, The Craftsman. Eric's authentic reproductions are found as far afield as the White House and the Mascot Saloon in Skagway, Alaska. But the primary focus of the show is on historic homes and forgotten treasures in his hometown of Eureka in California. Moreover, around a decade ago, he started a program to help fellow veterans redefine themselves in the wake of coming home from war. Why can I work with combat veterans? Have you ever heard the term, what don't kill you makes you stronger? What's that really mean? Does it make you physically stronger? Yeah, probably a little bit of that. Does it make you uh, smarter, stronger in, in smartness? Yeah, there's probably a little bit of that in there, I suppose. It doesn't make you spiritually stronger. I'll give you that. It, there could be some of that in there. I think it's the fourth one. It gives you empathy because you walked a mile in those boots. Eric is also running a program for kids who dropped out of school, which he launched in 2000 and which has yielded great success. And for Eric, this means serious business. I can relate to these guys and gals. They're wonderful people. They're, the young people are wonderful people. And the veterans are wonderful people, attributes they don't even know they have. The 76-year-old shared his insight and passion for his pursuit. You work with these and this, and you are a uh, craftsman. You work with these and this and your heart, and you're a master craftsman. What a touching story. Now, in Japan, Tokyo experienced unusually warm weather today. This prompted many residents to take a moment to snap photos of early blooming cherry blossoms. Japan's meteorological agency recording a high of 75 degrees Fahrenheit in the center of Tokyo. But temperatures in Tokyo are forecast to plunge rapidly later in the week. The weather agency forecasting lows of 37 degrees Fahrenheit by the weekend. That's pretty warm. Yeah. Well, that's all for today's news. Thank you for tuning in with us. Feel free to reach out to us with news tips or feedback at news.today at ntd.com. We'll be back with more stories tomorrow.